Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after his landslide win, what will Team Polyev look like? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us to discuss that. And in the face of dramatic territorial gains by Ukraine, Russia hasn't said much about it. Have Russian goals actually changed in that war? And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington report. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As expected, Pierre Polyev uh, will address the leader, the Conservative Party, rather, as their brand new leader. He won and won big on Saturday. Laurie Paris has some details for us. Pierre Polyev is set to meet with the Tories' members of Parliament and Senators in Ottawa, where many had already gathered to see his big win. The longtime MP cruised to the opposition leader's office with a blowout victory that saw him capture nearly all of the country's 338 ridings and nearly reached the 70% support mark from party members. He's already begun transitioning into his new role as leader, having just over a week to do so before the House of Commons resumes on September 20th. Today's caucus meeting also marks the first time party MPs will get a chance to see how Polyev intends to both lead and manage their internal matters. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. So a lot of questions, an impressive victory, but uh, as uh, one of the uh, pundits mentioned on Saturday, now the hard work begins for uh, Mr. Polyev. Uh, joining us to talk about that, of course, is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Laurie is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, no surprise, I guess, with the result. Uh, maybe the surprise is, is how big the margin of victory was on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely the night that Pierre Polyev wanted. And two of every three votes that were cast in this thing were vote were cast for him. There was also, um, if my math is right, about a quarter million people who signed up and who didn't vote. So there's a story there, I think, right? Not that that's a homogenous group, but there's something interesting happening if there were so many who decided to take out a membership and be engaged in this and then ultimately not show up for anybody in the end. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring that number up because I found that rather surprising as well. Uh, now, uh, and we can't all assume, by the way, that they were all candidates for other people. Maybe they were Paul F. supporters that just said, well, why bother? He's going to win anyway. We don't really know the reason. Uh, but uh, it, it does beg the question then, uh, does he have control of the party? I mean, it was an overwhelming victory of, for those, uh, you know, among those who actually went and voted, but not everybody did. That's it. And so you're right. I mean, we, we would need to know a lot more than we do now about what motivated the people who didn't come out. I suspect you got a good chunk of people in that group who were going to vote for Patrick Brown and then decided not to pivot to anyone else once he was eliminated. But there's, that doesn't account for even half, right? Like there, even if no one who, who signed up for Patrick Brown voted, that's still not even half of the people who sat out. And so what's happening there? And as you say, is it because people thought, okay, this is a foregone conclusion and I'm fine with it, so I'm not going to bother voting? Or are there people in that group who are saying, you know, I know that Pierre Polyev is going to win and I don't want to be a part of that. And, and, so and how do we to some of the challenges you'll have. Yeah, this is what I was concerned about here. I mean, they all want to show unity. No matter what kind of a convention it is, no matter which political party we're talking about, when the winner is declared, uh, you know, they're standing up there uh, usually with a spouse and, and you know, the, to the adulation of the crowd that's there. We are one party. We are one united party, which is what Andrew Scheer said, which is what Aaron O'Toole said. Uh, and it doesn't quite work out that way. I mean, there were a lot of descending voices uh, within the Conservative Party about Polyev during this leadership campaign. Do, you, do they just forget about that now and, and just drop it and say, well, okay, he's the leader. Let's just forget about uh, past grievances. 
I mean, I think that's what he would want. <laughs> and I think he oh, sure. some people will say, look, do you want the party to be united or not? And if you do, well, then don't bellyache and come and support the leader. And there's something to that, I think. But on the other hand, people who really feel that his brand of conservatism is is unpalatable for them for specific reasons, right? Like he will say, I'm for freedom. I'm for quality of life. I'm for helping you with your costs when Justin Trudeau won't. Who is not on board with that? How can you possibly not be on board with that? And then some people will say, yeah, you know, I'm reading between the lines of what you're saying when you talk about freedom, when you talk about plain language. I know what you really mean. And you're plucking the threads of grievance politics and I don't want any part of it. Right. And so, like, we'll see some of that continue over time. I think today is a good day for the conservatives, but some people are going to say they're not going to be with him. And there's some pretty heavy hitters in Canadian politics on the conservative side who are saying they're not with him. So however much he's going to have to deal with that remains to be seen, but I don't think he can kind of like breeze over the factions in the party. I think they're quite still very much there. Well, we've got the center-ice, well, I guess they're the center-ice Canadians now, not the center-ice conservatives anymore, uh, but they're there. A, a good deal of them are conservatives, of course, that were in that situation. And at, the one thing I guess he can really hang on to at this point, Laurie, is uh, I don't think there's going to be a caucus revolt like there was for Aaron O'Toole, because, you know, within the Tory caucus itself, uh, he had an overwhelming victory there. So they're they're comfortable, at least the majority of them are comfortable. But I'm, I'm concerned about the bigger picture here. What's going to happen on a national basis? Not so much going to happen in that caucus room later today. Yeah, I think you're right. He's He has been the front runner and he's been the front runner within caucus too. And so I think given how much experience he has as a parliamentarian and the people around that table are very much used to being on a team with him, I think he's not going to have a revolt situation. But at the same time, like he's going to have the same test as everybody else. He's even though I think he's in a much better position to try to succeed at this than Sheer or O'Toole. I think he's st- you know, he still faces the same reality that the party for the last two elections has won the popular vote, not the seat count. So how is he going to change the party's fortunes? I think he's trying to do that by growing the base and appealing differently and giving the party, you know, he's going to be doing the same thing that everybody else does around going around and having a look at the math in each riding and thinking which ridings can I win? What margins do I need? And he's going to be doing this by inches rather than by, you know, launching this huge national campaign and having everybody come to him. What's team Polyev going to look like here? In other words, his, his shadow cabinet, uh, the people he's going to be relying mm-hmm. on to, to be the critics. Uh, do, do they reward the other uh, candidates for the leadership? Uh, does it reflect uh, different voices within the party? Or, or do you have to be loyal to Pierre and that's all there is to it? That's a really fascinating question. Because when you look at what happened and the the margins between the candidates on that ballot, he doesn't, I mean, he can easily say he doesn't owe anybody anything because he got 68% on his own. Sheree was his closest and he's not an MP. Scott Aitchison got like 1% and Leslie Lewis didn't do all that great, right? And so like whether he feels that he has to reward any of them on the basis of what they can bring to him, I don't think he has to think like that. On the other hand, I think it would be a major missed opportunity if he does not make sure that the party and the group around him, his core, you know, he he needs to make sure that that represents the diversity of the party. And so if he doesn't, it's just, I think that's that's not only bad from a policy perspective and bad from an inclusion perspective, it's bad from a political perspective too, and that it will leave him open to challenges that he's just, 
you know, he he's this is his own party and he doesn't care. Right. And so in, and at the end of the day, he still has to win. He's not popular everywhere. He's not popular in, in many places. And so how will he kind of buttress his own, uh, you know, his own image, his own personality by bringing in people who can who can sort of cover off some of the bases that he doesn't? Well, I go back to the Ipsos poll that was released last week. Forty-two uh, percent of the people that were polled uh, by Ipsos uh, said they didn't even know this guy, didn't know enough about him to even form an opinion. But the majority of those that did respond to the poll and said, "Yeah, we know something about him," they didn't like him, uh, and he does not poll well in Quebec. He does not poll well in Ontario. And uh, if you're not doing well in those two provinces, uh, the chances of you actually forming any kind of government are, are pretty onerous. Oh God, he yeah, but is exactly right. Like he, he needs to figure out how he is going to build to the point where he's getting some traction in the nine hundred five and the four one six. He has to figure out how he's going to build something in Quebec. I mean, Quebec's going to be complicated for him, and it's going to be complicated for any conservative leader. I think for a number of reasons, but still, he has to figure out how exactly he's going to run the kinds of candidates he needs who are going to win places. I think we're going to see him really hone in on what he's going to categorize as the incompetence of the Trudeau government. He knows people, not, not everybody likes him, right? And so he's going to try to build something on the sense of frustration and voter fatigue with the liberals and a palpable dislike for Justin Trudeau that he's able to ride out. And I think he's, you know, he's getting somewhere with all of that. And so it's going to be for him, you know, to put together a strategy for the general election, something that doesn't require people to like him. And that we've seen people, we've seen politicians do that before. He doesn't oh, have sure. to be everybody's favorite guy. But let's talk about that strategy for just a second. Uh, the past tradition, I mean, recent past anyway, is that uh, when there's a leadership, and there have been quite a few leadership conventions for the conservatives lately, uh, the candidates, for the most part, uh, tend to campaign to the hard right. Uh, and even, you know, the, the Andrew Shears and, and the Aaron O'Toole's. Uh, but invariably, they tend to, to shift a little bit to the center middle uh, when it comes to the policy decisions and some of the key issues. And I, I, does Paulie have, have that within him? Is it in his DNA to be that flexible? Or is he going to stay right where he is on that side and say, this is like me or not, I don't care, but this is who I am? Yeah, so I think there's like some of the rhetoric that he uses it is clever, you know, if I can put it that way, at sending signals to people who are farther right that he hears them and he understands and he's actually, you know, he's, he's in the realm of, of what they're thinking about and he understands it. But he also uses rhetoric that's hard to pin down. So he's not coming out and being explicit about things that might be on the harder right. He's sort of hinting at them in language that can also be applied and unpacked differently to different people. A word like freedom, well, everybody likes that, right? And he's talking about affordable gas, affordable food. Well, people care about those things. And so like, it seems to me he's blending some um, shout outs in kind of, in kind of a way to the, the far right at the same time as he's saying things that are a little bit more broadly applicable. What he has to do when he get, you know, if he's given the opportunity to form a government, um, I think he's. We're going to see a lot of the Pierre Polyev that we always have. I don't know that in his action he's all that extremist. I think he's trying to do something in, with political rhetoric to make sure he's got enough votes to win. But he's been in the Conservative caucus and he's been a cabinet member, um, and he's you know he's been there. He's been at the table, and so I think we have a pretty good sense of of what he would want to do on the ground. 
But again, yeah, like he's using that rhetoric to try to appeal and to grow the tent on the right side. And it's a, it's but the end game here, of course, is mass appeal. You want people to vote for you, and, and you know whether you like them or not. You want the, mm-hmm. this is the policy that's going to get us out of this, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, just how he develops that. I mean, he's going to fight inflation, he tells us, and and it's all the liberals' fault, he tells us, uh, and that plays great in front of a conservative audience. But uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays over to the general public and as as to whether or not they're going to buy this, because there seems to be. A consensus that this is a global problem. Yeah, it's it's affecting my house and your house and everyone else's house in our neighborhoods and right across the country. Uh, but it's affecting the United States. It's affecting the UK. UK is a conservative government, and they're they're worse off than we are. So, uh, you know, it's it, I guess you put the bombast aside right now and say, okay, you know, put some meat on the bones here, Mr. Pauly. What are you planning on doing? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, if the Liberals and the NDP keep to their deal, he won't have to answer that question anytime in the next three years. I think he's counting on an implosion on that side, right? Like he's counting on the fact that people will be tired of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. And what he has to do is put up an alternative that people will entertain. As long as he can keep the House in order and make it look like the Conservatives know what they're doing and they get along well enough to be able to handle government if they were given the opportunity, he's hoping that the liberals will defeat themselves and that's not a stupid hope right like that's that's actually probably pretty predictable when a government gets to be 10 years old no matter who they are and we saw yep. that with stephen harper we saw that certainly with uh, even jean Chrétien and paul martin uh, and it, there's a, a best before date i guess for just about every government the way our system seems to work these days uh, what about some of the key issues though that always seem to be driving uh, campaigns when we d- get to that point things like uh, climate change for instance the environment and things of that nature, where the conservatives have been weak on, on a couple of those issues that uh, have risen in importance to the Canadian public. Uh, I know he's, he's he's from Alberta. I know he's you know been very strident in his, his support for for the oil pro, oil sands projects and things of this nature. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see just what kind of policy they try to devise there to try to appease that element in that industry, and at the same time, uh, those who have some concerns about environmental issues. Oh, absolutely. And obviously, those sorts of things are going to break down on regional lines in ways that are not going to be convenient for Pierre Polyev. It's going to be interesting to see what his relationship is as the leader of the opposition and somebody who's now running to be prime minister for real. How his his relationship with the provincial premiers, particularly the premier of Alberta, whoever that ends up being, that's going to be a really interesting space for him to play. And I think like every other conservative leader, he's going to have to say where he is on climate, where he is on carbon pricing, how that's going to work and how that's going to fit within a regime that's that the Supreme Court has already acknowledged. The federal government has a legitimate leadership role there. And so it's going to be something that I think he will be held to account for. And it will see whether Trudeau is the one he actually runs against. Trudeau is, although I think getting, you know, he's he's getting to that point where if he stays till 25, he's going to be the, the prime minister for 10 years. That's a long time. But he's also a formidable campaigner. And he, I think, stayed alive in the 2021 campaign by, which was his own risk, by shifting the narrative in a way that was very clever for him and for the liberals. And so even though I think Polyev would love the opportunity to run against Trudeau in a general, you can never really count Trudeau out. He is a fantastic campaigner. It starts this morning, I guess, with the, the Conservative Caucus meeting, and we'll get a, a little inkling, I guess, as to which direction Polyam is going to go in. Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. I always enjoy the conversation. Have a great week. You too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University with her perspective on um, the new Conservative leader. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting news from Ukraine. Uh, first of all, experts now say that yesterday's shutdown of Ukraine's nuclear power plant has cut nuclear risks, which were starting to actually skyrocket and concern an awful lot of people. Charles de Ledesma has some details. The forced shutdown of Ukraine's endangered Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Europe's largest, significantly reduces the risk of a radiation disaster that's concerned officials for weeks. The last of the Russian-occupied plant's six nuclear reactors was shut off on Sunday because Russia's military actions in Ukraine had repeatedly cut reliable external power supplies. That power is needed to prevent the reactors from overheating to the point of meltdown that could breach the surrounding concrete and steel containment walls and spew radiation through Ukraine, Russia and other nearby countries. I'm Charles de Ledesma. Uh, we want to talk about that. I want to talk about the troop movements over the weekend too, which were significant. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, Elliot Tepper. Elliot, of course, is an emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. Uh, good morning, Elliot. Great to have you with us again. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Good to be with you. Well, let me ta- start with the nuclear plant. Uh, important sure. news, of course, about the shutdown. The last reactor, of course, was turned off uh, yesterday, shut down yesterday. Uh, just to put this in perspective for uh, for our listeners, I know you're fully aware of this. Uh, when we start talking about nuclear concerns in, in Ukraine, uh, it brings back some pretty ugly memories of Chernobyl, because that's, that's exactly what happened there, wasn't it? Yes, in 1986. The um, first thing the Russians did in this invasion was to recapture Chernobyl. And then they later um, later withdrew, but uh, Chernobyl was, along with Fukushima, perhaps the, I, th- I think it exceeded Fukushima in terms of release of radiation. It is still a, a hot spot, one of the um, many signs of the irresponsibility of the Russian invasion is that they had <laughs> well they they had their own troops digging sand from Chernobyl to put in sandbags. It was radioactive sand, so those Russian soldiers are probably, you know, in bad shape right now, according to what I've been reading. So this is, you and I have been talking about this right from the opening seconds of this invasion. Was the nuclear threat, one of the two nuclear threats that come out of the invasion, the first one being, of course, the repeated threats by by Mr. Putin that he would use nuclear weapons. He hasn't talked that way lately, <laughs> but uh, yes, this, this meltdown, the the um, potential meltdown. This is not a meltdown, but this is a uh, a site which has six nuclear reactors to produce electricity. This is the final one that's not been shut down. The sixth one has now been shut down because it's in, it's entirely possible that it could, in fact, start to release radiation. Well, because uh, there's a war going on around it. I mean, it's not as if you know it's in isolation. I mean, you know, there there are you know, people battling each other. The Russians control it. The Ukrainians are trying to uh, retake it. I mean, it's the chances of an accident are increasing substantially by, by every day here, aren't they? It's in all kinds of ways. Uh, the first one is that the Russians apparently have fortified it and are using it as a shield. They're firing out uh, from there, knowing that you can't fire back in. But there's missiles all around the nuclear, uh, a substantial nuclear weapons area. Uh, nuclear reactor area, so the possibility of mishap is there. But also, uh, the Ukrainian staff has to mine these. The Russians who have taken over that plant are not technically able to actually run it. So they are using Ukrainians, 
uh, the Ukrainian staff. Apparently, they've beaten two of them to death. They're beating others as well. Uh, so the staff has been forced to work under duress to save the Russians themselves from the possible release of nuclear radiation. Mr. Putin can clamp down on all the dissent he wants inside Russia, but he can't control which way the wind would blow if there is a radioactive leak, uh, radiation leak, and it gets into the atmosphere. Uh, it's a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, very. Put aside, and I'm not trying to downplay the danger because it is, as I say, magnifying it almost on a daily basis now. Uh, but with the shutdown here, as you mentioned, this was a, a, a power supply plant for, for Ukraine. Uh, just as we've talked about oil and gas being in short supply over there in Europe right now and the, in, you know, the, the implications of that. Uh, what does this do for the, the, the people in Ukraine? A, a number of the cities have been decimated, but there are still people living in many of those communities. Yes, the uh, Russians apparently have been trying to take the one remaining electrical uh, line that's been, you know, generated electricity, which has been serving the Ukrainian area, and redirect it to service the Russian area, or to serve Russia itself uh, instead. But as part of that, <laughs> as part of that effort, they have now, as the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, inspectors have said, they have now put the whole plant in jeopardy. The, I, those inspectors are still on the ground there. Very bravely, they went in. They said, we're not leaving. The demand is, and it's a justified one, let's make this a demilitarized zone for everybody. Uh, it's far too dangerous to have it remain in a war zone. The Russians are insisting that it does remain in a war zone. The electricity is no longer there. The only electricity going in lately apparently was to service the plant itself to pre prevent this kind of potential radiation leak, and now that is in danger. What's interesting about this, and I think you made this point to us that one of the first days, as you mentioned, Elliot, of the invasion, uh, as one of their first objectives, as you mentioned, was Chernobyl. Uh, they didn't do much. I mean, they, they held it for a while, and they, they, it's under Ukrainian control once again. Uh, there was some concern about sabotaging, about doing any number of things. Apparently, they didn't touch anything, and the, the speculation here is because they didn't know what they had. Yes, well, actually, there's some reports that they looted everything possible on the way out. They really didn't understand it. They were stealing computers and anything they could carry and trying to sabotage anything that was left behind. Uh, so it's basically very reckless and irresponsible and very dangerous uh, behavior by, by Russia regarding nuclear activity. All right, let's switch, if we could, to what happened uh, in the weekend, actually the days leading up to the weekend as well. Uh, we've we've heard stories about Russian soldiers just simply dropping their weapons on the battlefield and running uh, from the Ukrainian advances right now. And a number of, of communities were overtaken by Ukraine once again. And, and what some people, uh, Elliot, are saying is one of the most significant uh, weekends of the war so far, and uh, from the Ukraine standpoint anyway, about you know taking their country back. What, what's your read on what you've seen? Well, quite clearly, it's a major development. We don't know... <laughs> how much longer this war will go on. The first major development, as everybody points out, was the failure of the Russians to implement Plan A, which was to have their uh, blitzkrieg and uh, take over the Russian, uh, the Ukrainian government, kill its leaders, and basically eliminate Ukraine as a state. That didn't work out for them. They then shifted all their activity to the, to the um, uh, Donbass region and then tried to consolidate there. So what we are now seeing was a, a blitz by Ukraine, 
the Russians are now saying, oh, they had an 8-to-1 manpower advantage over us, and that's why we lost. But what's happened is that the Ukrainian forces now uh, have retaken a lot of the territory around the key area, Kharkiv, and they uh, just quoting some here, Ukrainian forces have penetrated Russian lines to a depth of 70K in some places, captured over 3,000 square K of territory in the past five days, more territory than the Russian forces have captured in all of their operations since April, and another 500K have been taken by Ukraine since then. So Ukraine, in a counteroffensive, they kept saying, oh, we're going to attack in the south, we're going to attack in the south, we're going to get a counteroffensive. The Russians moved a lot of the troops down to the south, and then, and then um, Ukraine then moved, as we've seen, in a, in a striking offense, a counteroffensive, to try to liberate areas, and they are striking toward uh, the Donbass itself. So earlier we saw them strike uh, inside Crimea, behind Russian lines there, and now they are heading toward uh, areas which are Russian-speaking. <laughs> this, is, this is an area that they thought they would automatically be welcomed in with flowers, and now people are running into the streets to welcome Ukrainian forces liberating those areas. The uh, Russian news agency, I'm sure you saw this report too, Elliot Tass, uh, says that uh, the defense ministry actually ordered yes. the troops to leave that vicinity to reinforce operations elsewhere. <laughs> uh, yet when uh, the, the Ukraine forces moved in there, and as, as some, did some media, uh, there were rifles left behind, artillery left behind, armored vehicles left behind. That doesn't sound much like a retreat. No, it was a, it was a chaotic, as it, all the media covers it, it's a, a chaotic uh, retreat, apparently, some of the soldiers left in their underwear. They dropped their rifles on the ground. Substantial quantities of material, very important uh, for the Ukrainian armed forces. A substantial amount of material was left behind, armaments, uh, APVs in particular, a bunch of tanks that are either damaged or can be repaired or intact right now. So it is. it was a rout. I don't think there's any doubt about that. All right, but talk to me about the implications of this, because there was a story late last week uh, that indicated that uh, that some of the nations, including the United States, in particular the United States, uh, were sending messages, uh, at least implying anyway, that, uh, that the, the weaponry that they've been supplying to, to Ukraine for the last little while, uh, maybe you've got what you've got and that's all you're going to get. Uh, they haven't said that yet, but there seemed to be some concern. And... Uh, does this indicate right now that, look, it, you can't stop now. Look what we're doing. We're on the edge here of doing something to get our country back. You've got to continue with this? Certainly, um, that's going to be a message that's obvious and self-evident, that we are making effective use of the weapons that you're giving us, but we really need more in order to keep this going. Uh, what's interesting is apparently both sides are running out of armament readily at hand. The Russians, will, you'll remember, were um, supposed to have such an overwhelming superiority and the capacity to produce them that they could swamp anything Ukraine could do. Now, both sides are scrambling. Russia, uh, because right now we're talking about, you know, the West is having difficulties. Uh, they're reaching into their stocks. Uh, some countries, Germany among them, saying, well, we, we've given what we can give, um, what we have readily on hand. But uh, two things are happening. One is Russia is going around the world, we know, to Iran and to North Korea. What a 
fine combination of states. They're buying drones. They're buying um, ammunition. And they're, they're, they're breaking sanctions uh, to get those in. And on the western side, it's the um, – and by the way, the, just after this victory uh, by the Ukrainians in this route, uh, the <laughs> Russians are saying we're now going to keep our – Tank manufacturing production, their weapons, twenty four seven. They no nobody gets a holiday. They are running out of materials. Hard to believe, but but in the uh, West, are we really going to see a running out of material there? Mr. Zelensky, President Zelensky, is addressing manufacturers directly. <laughs> he's, uh, Western manufacturers of weapons. He's going to be addressing them this week, saying, "We need this. Help your own country. Help us." What, what do you read into this uh, long term here? Is is this the tide turning here? Do the Russians uh, mount a counteroffensive to try to take some of these regions back? Uh, and as one commentator was speculating in the weekend, or does Putin just simply say, "Well, we've accomplished what we wanted. You know, we've eradicated the Nazi movement. Uh, so we're going home now." Yes, uh, that's always been an option right from the beginning when they plan A didn't work out for them, and they they could have gone back and said, "Look, we're going to." Uh, we are now liberated the Donbass. By the way, they, the referenda that they were planning to hold in these little statelets and others, uh, and other areas they grabbed, they were going to have these fake referendums saying, now this is part of Russia. They canceled those. So uh, President Zelensky has said, there's no way we can have negotiations. This is uh, uh, The Russians are cannibals. So if you give them what they want, they just say, okay, we'll take that, then they wait a little while and they'll take more. This happened after 2014. Well, look what happened. They grabbed up a bunch of territory. Now they come back. If you give them more territory now, they'll just wait and come back for more. The only way this can end diplomatically is for Russia to go back from being a terrorist state to being a normal state that has a dispute. Then we can talk. Uh, it's looking to be a very pivotal week and uh, we're so glad you had some time to talk to us about this this morning Elliot uh, to give this some perspective uh, we'll be watching events with great interest over the next uh, few days especially uh, take uh, care of yourself Lux, uh, and uh, I, I'll be touching base with you I'm sure as we get some more developments about what's happening I know President Zelensky is uh, is going to be making a statement I understand later on today our time anyway uh, about what's happening there uh, thank you uh, and we'll we'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. Elliot, take care. And uh, you're very welcome. Uh, take care, and, and we'll chat any time about this ongoing tragedy. And I appreciate that. And and that's the indication here that this might you know be actually a turning point in the war that's going on in Ukraine right now. However, I think we've probably reached that end one a couple of times before, and and you know all of a sudden things can change dramatically. Uh, but there's still some concerns, as we mentioned at the beginning of that conversation, about the nuclear plant and the implications there of the Russians still holding that a very valuable asset. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to switch to what's going on south of the border. Uh, big news out of Washington, of course, about uh, the cancer program that we just heard about on the news. Joe Biden, President Biden's in Boston to make that announcement. Uh, but there's some politics involved in, in what's going on south of the border, as there usually is, uh, including Mar-a-Lago, including uh, the, the, the appointment of a special master for that. But also uh, the funeral for Queen Elizabeth, which is coming up a week from today. And uh, um, at least a brewing controversy about exactly who might go there to represent the United States at that funeral. To talk about all this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for jumping on today. Happy Monday. 
Let me let me start with the the funeral, which is a week from today, as we mentioned in in London at Westminster Abbey. Uh, it's traditional, and we know that an awful lot of the world leaders are, are going to be there. President Biden's already signaled signaled that he's going to be in attendance. But it's not unusual for former presidents to attend some of these events, especially in light of the fact that the Queen was on the throne for seventy years and had seen and worked and met with a number of the U.S. presidents. Uh, I guess the question a lot of folks are asking in Washington right now, Reggie, uh, does Donald Trump get an invitation? So, Bill, what it turns out to be is that Donald Trump may not get an invitation, but neither may any of the other former living presidents, uh, which go all the way back to Jimmy Carter. And that is because there was reporting out this morning that the palace has not uh, provided an invite for the current president, Joe Biden, to bring a delegation with him to the funeral next week. And from what we understand here is that private individual invitations were only sent out to President Joe Biden and uh, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden. And considering no other former president, be it Donald Trump or any others, have come forward to say, look, we got an invitation to this as well. This could symbol that this is either going to be a pared down exercise or uh, you know, this could get into that speculation as to whether or not that rosy relationship that Donald Trump said that he had with the royal family may not have been as such and they didn't want to invite him. You know, that that's up for, for anyone's guess right now. But so far, it looks like it may only be a two person delegation heading out of Washington. And that, that's unusual. Uh, as you say, with heads of state, usually, uh, I mean, we've all been to Westminster Abbey, if you've ever been to London. That's a must see. Uh uh, and uh, you have to wonder exactly what what they're going to do here in the sides of this, because uh, this was all a buzz from I was watching a lot of the network coverage uh, from CNN, MSNBC and and others over the weekend. And and they, they, they were talking about this and because Biden is actually well, he doesn't tweet anymore. But uh, when whatever social media platform it is that he's using, uh, issued some very complimentary things about the queen and that we're our best friends. And, you know, what a great lady, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which which seems somewhat contrary to the to the way he acted the last time he was over there for the royal visit, but but notwithstanding, it was almost like he was he was lobbying for an invitation to the funeral. Yeah, it's possible, and you're right. I mean, the the conduct uh, from the former president when he was in uh, uh, the UK when he was still in power, and there were those moments where you saw him walking in front. Uh, of the queen you know protocol simply wasn't followed there but you know this kind of really this this decision for the palace at least to potentially only invite a very 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 small um delegation from the united states goes against uh that from other uh heads of state i mean state funerals uh including from uh former south african president nelson mandela had a very large delegation of officials not just from the united states from canada as well uh but for the funeral i mean look this this is a a new uh era within the, the monarchy that we've already heard that King Charles III wants to start to slim down and pare down what the monarchy is. And possibly that means, uh, you know, scaling down uh, events as well. Uh, you know, there's a lot that can happen over the next week. The president says, I'm just reading it right now, that he has accepted the invitation uh, and would be accompanied next week by the first lady. But ultimately, from what we understand, um, that that invitation may may stop at, at the two and, and those who have to travel with them. It's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, about the other invitees, the other dignitaries, well, including Prime Minister Trudeau, I would assume, uh, because they haven't talked about it much. It hasn't been much of a story here. It's just assumed the Prime Minister will attend. Uh, but again, you know, maybe not an entourage this time. It, it is 
different this time around, and that's kind of interesting. Of course, you know, then now that raises even more speculation. Did they just say, look, Trump or no Trump? Uh, you know what? None of them come. That's that's the best way to avoid the controversy, and that may well be of the the, the, the line of thinking on this. But as you mentioned, Reggie, a week's a long time in politics, and who knows what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, look, when it comes to foreign leaders uh, as well, you know, if we extend far beyond the borders of Canada and the United States, there, there are questions as to whether other uh, world leaders are going to show up, whether that is someone like President Putin, whether that is someone uh, like like Chinese President Xi Jinping, who's expected to leave China for the first time since uh, the pandemic broke out when he heads into uh, uh, southwestern Asia. Uh, to potentially meet with President Putin, you know, it's 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 anyone's question as to whether that uh, is going to to to, to formalize there. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's expected that a, a large Canadian delegation will likely go, potentially, potentially uh, more than the president and the first lady. Uh, but you know, anything can happen between uh, now and then. But ultimately, this is going to be one of those moments that will be recorded in the history books because, again, the death of the Queen really has become the dominant conversation, not just here in. Washington, but really around the world. Absolutely, it has. Uh, and, and again, who's going to be there? It's, it's, it's. I don't want to boil it down and be, and be flippant and say it's a status thing, but it does matter who gets invited to things like this. Uh, it, it sees, yeah, it kind of indicates where you are on the pecking order. Uh, I know, I know, Jake Tapper from CNN was speculating on the weekend. He said he should. They were CNN was suggesting they invite Trump. I know. I don't know if they were doing that from a cynical standpoint or what. But I have noticed. I just want to get your read on this. Uh, this <laughs> CNN seems to be bending a little more to the to the right side of the political spectrum than they have in the past. Yeah, and look, th this really has has kind of come post new ownership, uh, you know, realistically or, or new leadership uh, with uh, with Zucker out, Jeff Zucker out, and now Chris Licht uh, uh, in place at, at CNN. There really has been this kind of um, turn from a network that often used its uh, journalists as sometimes kind of political experts or at least talking heads or mouthpieces to kind of go after not only former President Donald Trump, but really kind of become critical of right-wing media. And over the last several weeks since we've seen this new leadership be put in place, the tone has changed on CNN. Republican talking points are now being discussed. More Republicans are actually being brought in. And we've seen the ouster of some uh, 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 on-air personalities, both journalists and not, uh, who were oftentimes critical of the former president and the orbit of the former president. So whether this is kind of an ushering in of a new era of CNN or they're trying to bring themselves back from this world of uh, of kind of biased partisanship and talking points, you know, that's something that will obviously play out over the next couple of weeks. But it is interesting to see that as Fox News starts to bleed some of its viewers, uh, CNN is trying to say, well, look, there could be money up for grabs here. Maybe we should try to bring them over and try to, you know, quote unquote, centralize uh, some of what their talking points are. But it really was interesting to hear Jake Tapper say uh, unprovoked that Donald Trump should get an invite here. Um, and that really led to that immediate pushback of why do something like that? This is kind of a new political um, journalistic era that's underway in the United States as well. Well, yeah, and you're right. Everybody seems to be involved. Fox News, certainly, as you mentioned, but even MSNBC, which is leaned an awful lot to the left, of course, in the last year and a half or so. Uh, and they've lost some some people. I mean, Rachel Maddow is essentially gone. I think she does one show a week now. Uh, so, you know, CNN could be looking at this, and you're absolutely right, saying, you know, we can grab from both of these people right now. Uh, they used to have Republicans on there sometimes, but they were usually disenchanted Republicans that didn't like Donald Trump. And now they, I'm not suggesting they're pro-Trump right now or pro-Republican, but, but they seem to be 
as you say, listing a little bit to the right. It's going to be interesting to see just just how that develops in the uh, the weeks and months ahead as they head towards uh, the midterms. Speaking of which, uh, give me the latest, if you could, Reggie, about the special master, because I know that both the Department of Justice and the, and the Trump legal team have put names forward uh, since there is going to be a special master. Uh, they've got some very different approaches as to who they'd like to see do this. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the names coming from the uh, from Team Trump uh, include uh, a lawyer that uh, was uh, or rather a judge that was put in place by uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, there are uh, names that were put forward by the Department of Justice, uh, including a judge that was put in place by Bill Clinton. So trying to pull in a bit uh, of the kind of political spectrum on that side. I think going beyond the special master here, though, considering we don't exactly know who it's going to be, is that the Department of Justice is still trying to put Push back on the need for uh, a special master saying, look, we've already had teams uh, go through this. Uh, they've appealed uh, the need to have a special master in the first place. And they actually then went to the judge uh, and asked for uh, a stay on a certain part of her order to allow them to restart their investigation into about 100, just over 100 uh, documents they believe to be uh, you know, highly classified so that they could kind of scrub them a little bit more. Just this morning uh, at 10 o'clock on Monday morning, uh, Trump's team went back and said, look, we oppose this. We do not want the judge uh, to, to put any kind of stay in place here, which is now kind of building this this legal crescendo that's ongoing within this Trump search, because we're now at a position here where the Department of Justice is likely going to bring this to a federal appeals court. It will be in Atlanta. It is kind of on the, the conservative side when you look at how the bench is made up there. But the Department of Justice is really trying to hammer home saying, look, this is a serious situation. Trump's team is simply trying to muddy the perception here. Uh, and at the end of the day, we need to ensure that national security is intact. So this is you know working in Trump's favor in the fact that it's delaying things, but it's also keeping this in the news and keeping the realities here of what Donald Trump did when it comes to these documents. Reggie, have they broadened their their discomfort with this uh, about uh, the, the raid itself? I mean, initially, when when Trump protested about this, uh, it seemed to be on the basis that look at the, the, that's a lot of my personal stuff in there. Uh, you know, the, I own all this stuff, the documents. But now they're simply saying everything is his and under his ownership. And he had they're indicating that he had the legal right to even the top secret documents. There, they they've really, uh, I guess, kind of jumped in with both feet on this now. They have, and they're also undercutting their own arguments. Uh, in, in this filing that came out uh, on Monday morning, Trump's lawyers actually made a point of saying, well, look, the government hasn't even actually determined whether or not some of this information is classified when their own client has already made a point of saying, well, look, this was classified, but I declassified it all because I have uh, you know, some sort of quote-unquote standing order to be able to declassify it. So they're still trying to make this a storage issue and not a national security issue. Um, and the Department of Justice is really trying to latch onto that to say that this simply goes beyond just papers that were kind of stuck in drawers and stuffed into closets uh, at a golf course. This has to do with national security. And that is why the Department of Justice is moving up. There are concerns, though, from legal experts, Bill, that if they do appeal this, if this goes to the 11th Circuit in Atlanta, the only step above that would be to go to the Supreme Court. Obviously, we know that that is a conservative stack bench. We know there are several Trump appointed justices there. So this could become a little bit more difficult down the road. But for now, this is still simply a he said, she said, we want, they want. And nobody knows where it's going. 
And, and you don't know which speculation and what's fact here. I mean, you, you got, well, I know you guys were reporting over the weekend uh, about one of the leaked uh, stories was that, uh, that uh, among those top secret documents was the nuclear capability of one of the United States allies. I know we don't know which one, and we don't know where hap- what happened to that document. But uh, again, until there's confirmation of this stuff, Reggie, we really have no idea what's going on or, or actually who's involved in this. Absolutely. And look, that's part of what the Department of Justice is saying here in that they need to be able to continue this investigation because the judge said, look, the criminal investigation has to be paused right now. But she allowed for that national security review to continue on. But DOJ said, look, these are part and parcel with each other. We can't be dealing with uh, a potential national security breach. Well, then ignoring the fact that that would become criminal matter. Uh, One can't go on without the other. Uh, And given the fact that there are such serious issues at hand here, including um, those documents linked to another country's nuclear uh, abilities, America's credibility really is on the line here. Because if that was an ally's nuclear information that the United States was either potentially shopping around or just mishandling, that could really put into uh, focus here, um, you know, a negative strain on how America's allies deal with America going forward. So again, this goes far beyond what Republicans want to call simply a, a storage matter and goes really about how America is going to be viewed under the lens of a global audience and whether or not it can still be considered trustworthy. Is the Trump team here just trying to rag the puck until the midterms, hoping that they can actually regain the House or the Senate or maybe even both? Look, I mean, there's some strategy to that uh, because, you know, they understand that Republican talking points are starting to wane uh, in the weeks leading up to uh, the midterms because they are losing ground when it comes to discussions over inflation. They're losing ground when it comes to this Democratic push to ensure that things uh, like abortion uh, or or just the Supreme Court in general remains uh, on top of mind for voters. So for Republicans to keep this in the news, to continue painting the former president uh, as a victim, they are hopeful here that this is going to work in Republicans' favor and potentially get the voters out to put some of these more controversial figures in place, whether it's in the Senate or the House, because ultimately, with power on the line here, um, you know, getting control of the House means that Republicans can start to carry out their own investigations or their own potential impeachments uh, of Democrats. And keeping this in the news, keeping the former president, whether he's on a ballot or not, or going to run or not, Trumpism remains alive, and Republicans are relying on that. Pivotal week. Uh, lots of stuff going to happen this week for sure, and we'll be watching for your reporting on it on Global National. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, of course, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.